Welcome on in to Lance and Matt Plus here on Classic Hits 96.7 WBVI and ESPN 1430 AM 105.7 FM WFOB and WFOB and WBVI.com. I'm your host, Matt Cotman. Uh, Lance, currently on assignment, saving the world one housing purchase at a time. So I'm going to be in the driver's seat for today's program. I know what you're thinking. Yes, I'm, I'm a little scared, too, about this. But, hey, we're going to have a good time. We got a cool subject that we're talking about today. We are going to dive into the Plus version of Lance and Matt Plus, and we're going to be presenting a what-if scenario. Now, for those of you that don't understand the concept here, let me break it down for you pretty quickly, pretty straightforward. What we're doing is taking a scenario, something that happened in history, something that happened in sports, in the world, Anything of that matter. And we are going to basically game out a what-if scenario, as if things went differently. So we'll be doing examples such as, like, for today, I'll give you a little advanced preview. We're going to be talking about what if the drive didn't end the way it did for the Cleveland Browns. That's what we're going to be discussing today, because when you play it out and you game the whole thing out from start to finish... It's one of those moments in sports history that actually fundamentally changes the way the league looks today. Had one thing gone differently in that series of plays that happened back in 1987. So we're going to be covering that one today. Some future versions of this will be covering some things like if the moon landing had gone differently, you know, if, say, the Russians had beaten the U.S. to the moon, uh, maybe some more sports ones such as... If Jose Mesa didn't get put in the game in Game 7, that might be a personal one for me. Or if the Bills would have hit the field goal, as opposed to going wide right. If LeBron had stayed in Cleveland in 2010. If Shaq didn't leave the Lakers in 2004. You know, a a series of events, we have a whole list of them we're going to be covering. Lance has a few, too, that we'll be diving into. But for today, we're talking the drive. 15 plays, 98 yards, 5 minutes and 2 seconds that fundamentally changed the way the NFL was going to play out, not just in the 1986-87 season, but for the next 30-plus years. And we will game it out to about 2005-2006, I believe, is where we have this altered timeline, this alternate universe ending in is somewhere around there. Because we could keep going further and further and further, but it wouldn't necessarily do any good because then you start getting into way too much of a hypothetical. And we're diving pretty deep into the what-if hypothetical theory realm already with this one. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into it. First of all, let's get a few bits of information out of the way. Let's start with a general recap of the series of events that happened leading up to the drive. So this is courtesy of everyone's favorite website when they need to finish a final or a book report or something like that overnight. This is courtesy of Wikipedia from the Wikipedia free encyclopedia definition of the drive. The way they have it spelled out is as follows. The drive was an offensive series in the fourth quarter of the 1986 AFC Championship game played on January 11th, 1987 at Cleveland Municipal Stadium between the Denver Broncos and Cleveland Browns. Broncos quarterback John Elway, in a span of five minutes and two seconds, led his team 98 yards in 15 plays 
to tie the game with 37 seconds left in regulation. Denver won the game in overtime by making a 33-yard field goal, pulling off a 23-20 upset win over the hosting Cleveland Browns. The 98-yard drive ranks as pro football's prototypical clutch performance. Elway and his team spanned almost all of the 100-yard football field. According to an article by Sports Illustrated columnist and Colorado resident Rick Riley, when Elway started the drive, Broncos offensive guard Keith Bishop said to the Browns, we got them where we want them. Cleveland could not force a fourth down against Denver. And that is true. You look at the play-by-play of the drive in particular. Again, 15 plays. There's no gain around that. But you have one, two, three separate third-down situations where the Cleveland Browns, had they gotten a single stop, would have forced a fourth down, and things could have been different. Could have been much, much different. Could have been a whole different outcome to the game as a whole. So... What are we trying to get at here? What we're trying to get at is the fact that this is one of those touchstone moments in pro sports. This completely changed the course of history for two teams immediately with the Cleveland Browns and Denver Broncos, changed the course of history for a few other teams by way of this happening with the New York Giants clearly coming to mind, the Washington football team, formerly a name that we could not say out loud, the... Baltimore Ravens, Pittsburgh Steelers, Dallas Cowboys, New England Patriots, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I do believe if I'm looking at this correctly as well, the Cincinnati Bengals get a little bit of a different outcome in their future, but not so much. One of the few teams that has almost no adverse effect on them whatsoever is the San Francisco 49ers. They just kind of keep rolling, but it gets a little interesting when you see how things change once we play this out. So, that's the recap of the drive itself and some of the teams that are going to be affected by this, some of the situations that could get changed. We'll get into that in a little bit. First thing off the bat, if you talk to anyone that is a Cleveland sports fan from the 80s, the first thing they will say almost time and time again is the following sentence. If Don Rogers was alive... Denver does not complete the drive. For everyone else out there, who's Don Rogers? Don Rogers was a starting safety for the Cleveland Browns. He was a phenomenal safety. I mean, you look at his stat line, I'm pulling it up right now. His stat line doesn't necessarily speak to what he did, because regular season statistics, he only played two years, 1984 and 1985. But in that 1984 season, he was the defensive rookie of the year. Finished his career in the regular season, 31 tackles, two interceptions at a time when passing over the middle, not really something that happened a lot. So you could kind of see that you were starting to develop a pretty special player, was drafted in the first round in 1984 by the Cleveland Browns. So they clearly had high hopes for him going into his career, drafting him out of UCLA. And more importantly, you look at the year prior, that's... That's where things start getting interesting. 1984 and 1985, both seasons, when it was postseason play or any extracurricular play, he was the guy making plays. He was instrumental in keeping the Browns in the game against the Miami Dolphins back in the 84 season. Actually picked off 
Dan Marino twice with a broken hand, worth mentioning there. So in one game alone, he matched his career interception total. So the belief is pretty strong that had he been in the game, had he been alive for the drive, that it would not have played out the way that it did. Because at some point, he would have forced a stop. At some point, he would have broken up a pass. And had that been on a third down play, maybe we're talking about a different game. And that's, again, the whole point of what we're doing here. Because you look at the drive in particular. There was a third down and two. The big one, though, that comes to mind. There's a third and 18. It was the 10th play of the drive. It was a 20-yard pass from John Elway to Mark Jackson. That pass was around the middle of the field. As you look at the timeline after it for the next play, they got that ball snapped with a minute 19 left. So that happened middle of the field. So let's look at that in particular. Minute 47 left, third and 18, Don Rogers in the game. He breaks up the pass. And it's worth mentioning at this point, the reason Don Rogers wasn't in the game is really tragic, actually. I mean, eight days after Len Bias from the Boston Celtics passed away from cocaine overdose, um, Don Rogers died in the same manner. It was a heart attack from cocaine overdose, and it made even sadder. It was the day before his wedding. So really tragic story for Don Rogers, and really a discussion in and of his own right, just kind of the bittersweet and sadness of that story overall. It's a real shame just even looking at it. I mean, it's been 30-plus years, and it's still really just kind of sad to see how that played out and what happened to him. But getting back to the whole topic of today with the drive in particular, let's look at that 10th play that they stop it. It makes it a fourth down and 18. The likelihood of that fourth and 18 happening is slim to none. And you stop them there. They didn't have any timeouts left. That's the game Cleveland Browns are going to the Super Bowl against the New York Giants. Now, from this point forward, worth mentioning, hats off to an awesome website. They are called whatifsports.com. Now, the way they do it, it's a free matchup and simulator program where you can run as many times as you want. You can have any different scenarios, different teams, dream teams, all-decade teams for particular organizations. But what makes it really good is you can actually go back to historical matchups and hypothetical historic matchups. So that's what we did. Ran it 100 times for the following couple games and the following what-if scenarios. And what you end up with is pretty interesting. According to whatifsports.com, the Cleveland Browns, lose the Super Bowl against the Giants. And they didn't lose it by a lot. I mean, when we ran the simulation, it was like 54 to 46. I mean, it was pretty close statistically on that one where we decided to go ahead and say, yes, the Giants would have won that Super Bowl, but it would have been a close game, much unlike the game that happened between the Giants and the Denver Broncos. Where it gets a little bit more intriguing, though, is when you go into the next year, 1987-1988 season. That year, that's when the fumble happens. Now, the fumble, it say what you will about it, it's hard to really gauge a what-if scenario from that one. But, for the sake of this argument, we're saying that the fumble doesn't occur, the Cleveland Browns win that game as well, since you are simply mimicking the reverse of history of the Denver Broncos winning back-to-back AFC title games. 
So that means the Browns have now won back-to-back AFC title games. They play the Washington football team. And according to WhatIfSports.com, once again, they win pretty decisively. It was about 67-33 in favor of the Browns winning the Super Bowl. So you get to that point, the Browns have now been to back-to-back Super Bowls, and they've actually won a Super Bowl. So you have immediately changed the way the roster is going to be built going forward, the way the fan base feels going forward, and the way the city goes with this team. So let's dig a little deeper now. They've won the Super Bowl, been to -to back-to-back Super Bowls, 1988 season. They're just going to lose the wild card. It's just a bad year for them. Just things didn't work out. Going to say nothing changes in that year. Broncos in 1989 lose the Super Bowl to the San Francisco 49ers. And that 49ers team was just stacked from top to bottom. There was no way anyone was going to beat that 49ers team. We, we ran the simulations on, I think it was 92-8 to eight in favor of the 49ers. It was just, it was a runaway. Now, big change that happens for the Browns here. At that point, back-to-back down seasons, even after winning the Super Bowl, we make the assumption that Marty Schottenheimer is no longer the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. Instead, we go into what is known as the Dark Ages, the Bud Carson era for the Browns. But the Bud Carson era is not nearly as bad anymore because you don't have back-to-back AFC runner-ups. You have... NFL runner-up in 1987, or the 86-87 season, and then winning the Super Bowl in 87-88 year. So, not as bad. So you have the two years with Bud Carson. This is where things fundamentally start to change. 1992, Cleveland Browns actually let starting quarterback Bernie Kosar go. They got rid of him. Sent him to Dallas, or he ended up in Dallas. That's also where they hired Bill Belichick to be their head coach. Yes, that the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick. His first head coaching job was here in Cleveland. So, that's how the history originally happened. But I'm going to present it this way. History has changed. Bernie Kosar has been to two Super Bowls. Won a Super Bowl. The team's not going to let him go while he's still competitive and with a new head coach that, you know, prefers a little bit more of a institution based quarterback. You got to imagine Bernie Kosar stays in Cleveland. So Bernie Kosar is not going to be a Dallas Cowboy. With Bernie Kosar no longer being a Dallas Cowboy. The Dallas Cowboys no longer have Bernie Kosar as their backup quarterback in that 92 season where they needed Kozar to win a couple games at the end of the year while Troy Aikman was hurt on their way to the Super Bowl. Dallas Cowboys no longer win the Super Bowl in 92. The Buffalo Bills do. Other big thing that occurs as you start to play this out, John Elway is re-signed by the Broncos, so that part of history doesn't change. But what does change is what happens down south in Tampa Bay. Because in 1987, the Buccaneers drafted Vinny Testaverde. 
And then, a few years later, they traded Testaverde to Cleveland to replace Bernie Kosar. This scenario switches things up a bit. Vinny Testaverde now gets traded to Dallas. Dallas doesn't win those games. They don't go to the Super Bowl in 92. Are we talking about a Dallas Cowboy dynasty at this point? We don't know because the 93 team was stacked and that 95 team was just pretty loaded as well. Kind of hard to see where they go from that one. But the big changes overall start occurring at this point when you look at this alternate timeline because the Cleveland Browns have won Super Bowls 1992, you're keeping your all-world quarterback in Bernie Kosar. You hire Bill Belichick. The team starts to rally again. They make the playoffs in 1994. And around this time is when Project Gateway happened in Cleveland. Project Gateway led to Gund Arena, which then became Quicken Loans Arena, which is now Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, and then Jacobs Field, which is now Progressive Field. Part of Project Gateway was supposed to be a new stadium for the Browns. City didn't really have the funding for it. Art Modell didn't have the money for it. It just didn't really play out, and that was one of the big catalysts for moving the team to Baltimore. If you want a Super Bowl, bend the two Super Bowls. The city's going to have the funding for you to give you a stadium. Cleveland Browns don't move to Baltimore. Cleveland Browns get their new stadium. Now, this changes things up a little bit because part of the issue with Project Gateway is they only had space for two stadiums in that area. So who gets chopped? Is it the Cleveland soon-to-be Guardians, currently still the cash considerations, or is it the Cavaliers? That, that, that's a timeline scenario for another time. Point is, Cleveland Browns do not relocate to Baltimore. They get the new stadium, and they continue to go with Bill Belichick as their head coach. Why is that important? Well, that's important because when the team relocated, Bill Belichick decided to leave. He went under the tutelage of Bill Parcells again in New England. Was there for a couple years, then took the job with the New York Jets for all of five minutes, and then immediately resigned from that job to take the New England Patriots job instead. Bill Belichick doesn't have to relocate and move teams. He gets to stay with a Cleveland Browns organization that I might add adds Nick Saban to the coaching staff, as well as Kirk Ferenz and a few other key college coaches, and that will be explained the ripple effect here in a little bit. Bill Belichick stays in Cleveland. 1996 draft happens. Browns are not the Baltimore Ravens, which means the Cleveland Browns at pick number four and then pick number 26 or 28, whatever it ended up being, are going to draft Hall of Famers Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis because the rest of the roster stayed pretty much exactly the same. Kind of a big deal there. The Broncos, 97, 98, they still win the Super Bowl. The Packers still win in 96. But now we get back to Tampa Bay. Because Tampa Bay, at the same time, was requesting funds for a new stadium as well from the city of Tampa. They did end up getting it, but they threatened to relocate to Cleveland to get that funding. At least by most accounts, that was the general story and general belief, is that 
Tampa Bay Buccaneers actually were being considered as a possible relocation bid to Cleveland to become the Cleveland Browns, Tampa Bay Buccaneers would no longer exist. Cleveland doesn't leave for Baltimore. Baltimore is still chomping at the bit to get a team in their city again after the Colts have left. Tampa Bay doesn't get the funding because they don't get to threaten that they're leaving for Cleveland. Instead, the Baltimore Ravens, who made a hard press to make sure that Art Modell did not leave without an agreement in place that he was going to relocate the Browns to Cleveland, now give that same offer to Malcolm Glazer and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So in 1995, instead of the Cleveland Browns announcing they're relocating to Baltimore, it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers announcing that they, at the end of the season that they fired their head coach in Sam Weish and will be announcing that they are moving to Baltimore. Which, in 1996, the Baltimore Ravens make their first official move and hire Tony Dungy as their head coach. So think about that for a second. You go from Brian Billick and a kind of rebuilt middle-of-the-road Cleveland Browns team to a very bad Tampa Bay Buccaneers team that just so happens to have Mike Allstott, John Lynch, Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, Rondé Barber a year a year later from that, Warwick Dunn, Trent Dilfer, a lot of pieces in place that eventually led to the 2002 Super Bowl champ Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They are now the Baltimore Ravens. Buccaneers no longer exist in this scenario. And this just continues to go down the list. It's, it's kind of fascinating how you see it play out because not only does that change, but that also changes what happens in the AFC as a whole because now you look at that 2000 year when the Baltimore Ravens won their Super Bowl, beating the New York Giants. That's now the Cleveland Browns. That whole roster stays intact. We're, we're basing this purely off of whatever moves would happen, the relocation, everything of that nature. It just follows what that team would do. So in that scenario, Tampa Bay, now Baltimore, would be struggling middle-of-the-pack kind of team. Bill Belichick would still be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, which means the New England Patriots are still going with... Pete Carroll at the time, which also means the Jets are still going with Al Groll, and then eventually they still go back to Bill Parcells for, you know, a little bit of time. Or, my apologies, Bill Parcells happened... No, I'm correct. Bill Parcells happened after a lot of that fiasco occurred because Parcells was with the Patriots, then he moved to the Jets, and then he was with the Cowboys for a little bit once he hung them up. But the Jets still get Al Groll, as their head coach. The Patriots have Pete Carroll now. Pete Carroll probably still gets fired, but this is where things get a little interesting. The top pick for the Patriots before they went Carroll, they really liked Nick Saban. Nick Saban becomes the head coach of the New England Patriots, which means Nick Saban and a more scramble-friendly, more West Coast-ish, I guess you could say. Not really West Coast, but West Coast-ish. A little bit more aggressive-style offense. Gets to work with guys like Drew Bledsoe, uh, Curtis Martin. A lot of those moves end up not happening, which means the Jets don't get Curtis Martin, which means 
Drew Bledsoe, still there, has a great running back in Curtis Martin, which means their sixth-round pick in 2000 by the name of Tom Brady ends up not taking the reins in 2001. How I could get away saying that is pretty simple. You have Curtis Martin. Drew Bledsoe is not going to be running out of the pocket trying to scramble, which ends up breaking his leg, which leads to Tom Brady taking over. Can even take it a step further. There's a possibility Tom Brady isn't even drafted by the New England Patriots because the next pick after him, if I recall correctly, was either after him or before him. We'll have to look at it in a moment. Was Spurgeon win? That's right, the Spurgeon win. The legend that is Spurgeon win. <laughs> but you, you look at what Spurgeon win could do as a quarterback, probably actually fits better in a Nick Saban system than Tom Brady does. So now you're talking about Tom Brady not being on the New England Patriots. You're talking about Tom Brady potentially not even being drafted at this point. I mean, just think about that for a second. One play, breaking up one play, in the drive, in theory, leads to Tom Brady, the GOAT, and it kills me to say that, but he so proved me wrong in my belief that he was just a system quarterback by taking a scrub Tampa Bay Buccaneer team uh, just a mere year ago into the Super Bowl his first year out and winning it in the most unprecedented offseason and preseason the NFL's probably ever experienced with the COVID-19 pandemic. He's not even given a chance. He's not even given a shot. He might not even be on that team. That is how quickly and fundamentally things change with a simple what if the Cleveland Browns stopped the drive. So just to recap, the too long didn't read version for everybody. If the Browns stop the drive, lose Super Bowl to the Giants, win Super Bowl against Washington, Keep Bernie Kosar, hire Bill Belichick, not relocate to Baltimore, still draft Ray Lewis, Jonathan Ogden, still draft Chris McAllister, Peter Bulware, still build that great defense that led to the 2000 Super Bowl, still build a competitive powerhouse over the years that leads to another Super Bowl in 2010. So now you're talking about Cleveland Browns team with three Super Bowl wins in four appearances. The Dallas Cowboys lose their backup quarterback in Bernie Kosar. That helps them get to that Super Bowl win with Jimmy Johnson. Now they lose in 92. Maybe they still win 93-95. We don't know. Can't really gauge that one out too particularly because there's really no direct impact from that 92 season because... Kozar didn't really play that much in the other years while he was in Dallas. Tampa Bay Buccaneers end up being the team that moves. They no longer exist. You no longer have a John Gruden Buccaneers team winning in 2002. All came aside, there's a good chance that John Gruden actually stays in Oakland and he wins the Super Bowl still in 2002, but as a member of the Oakland Raiders coaching staff as their head coach. Now you're talking about a series of events that leads to the Raiders having a good Super Bowl run, sticking with John Gruden, not bouncing around, not becoming a laughingstock organization. And I know I'm deviating from what I said the too long didn't read, but another important thing to keep in mind, 
the Browns don't relocate. The Browns don't have the number one pick in 1999. All I did for that one, very straightforward, was just move each pick back by one for the top three picks. Because then the top three in that draft, and this is where it really gets kind of crazy how it can actually change. Got it right here. Just pulling it up right now. The first pick was Tim Couch. Then it was Donovan McNabb, Akili Smith, then Edron James. This draft changes significantly because now Tim Couch is no longer the first pick in the draft. Let's just move everything down a pick realistically. Tim Couch is now the pick of the Philadelphia Eagles at number one. Donovan McNabb goes to the Cincinnati Bengals at number two. The Colts, having just drafted Peyton Manning the year prior, still end up taking Edron James. New Orleans still ends up taking Ricky Williams as they trade up to buy the farm to get everything. St. Louis, on the other hand, do they still draft Torrey Holt? Or do they draft Akili Smith? That's where it becomes a little more intriguing. Let's assume they stick with Torrey Holt. Let's assume non-quarterback picks remain the same. So in this scenario... Torrey Holt still goes to the Rams. Champ Bailey still goes to the Washington. David Boston goes to Arizona. Chris Claiborne goes to Detroit. And now in this new hypothetical, Chris McAllister goes to Cleveland at number 10. Pick 11 is Minnesota. Minnesota now drafts Akili Smith. Then Chicago, instead of Cade McNown, drafts Dante Culpepper. If you go the rest of the way down, at that point, then Cade McNown realistically could fall out of the first round entirely because you have Troy Edwards, John Tate, uh, Anthony McFarlane would have been the pick of the Buccaneers slash Baltimore Ravens in this scenario. But you, you look down this list, there's not really a huge need for quarterbacks until you get to Arizona 21, who they could have taken Cade McNown instead of LJ Shelton. And you're still looking at just a fundamentally different league at that point. How much better is Chicago if they have Dante Culpepper? How much worse is Minnesota if they have Akili Smith? How much different is are the Eagles with Tim Couch? Cincinnati suddenly has Donovan McNabb. They don't draft Carson Palmer. Heck, they're probably not drafting number one anytime soon after that. You look at some of the other moves, they kind of stay the same, don't really change up, but still, these are the types of fundamental changes that we're talking about with this what-if scenario. Things can deviate that much, that quickly, in this alternate timeline that makes it just a fun what-if. So, to recap, Browns become three-time Super Bowl champions, Tampa Bay Buccaneers relocate to Baltimore, The Broncos keep John Elway. Vinny Testaverde becomes the backup of the Dallas Cowboys, and they end up losing their chance at the 1992 Super Bowl, thereby kind of eliminating any chance of a full-on dynasty. The New England Patriots, their new head coach is Nick Saban, eliminating LSU from contention going forward, as well as Alabama, most likely. The Jets keep Al Groh, don't really do much of anything else. The Giants still win the Super Bowl. The Ravens 
in theory, and you, you got to make this as an in theory, in theory, they could still win in 2002 or still in 2020, like we just had, if you're following Tampa's timeline. But since they moved to the same conference, you got to assume that the Raiders would still win and the Chiefs would still win. So the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the former Tampa Bay Buccaneers, would have no Super Bowls. John Gruden would still have a Super Bowl. Andy Reid would have two Super Bowls now. And the Philadelphia Eagles would have Tim Couch. Somehow I'm okay with that. Not too okay with the Cincinnati Bengals have Donovan McNabb, but I'm okay with the Eagles having Tim Couch. And that is our what-if scenario for this week. All right, so that was pretty fun doing a what-if scenario. We'll definitely do that again here in the near future. But now we're going to get back into a little bit of sports things because useless fact that totally only interests me, but I really don't care. My hometown, Olmstead Falls, Olmstead Township, finally has a gold medal Olympian. Yes, that is right. I am talking, of course, of Katie Najat, or if you ask NBC, Katie Nagyot. Don't know how they messed that one up the first time, but that's not important. What's important is Katie Najat won the gold medal here at the 2020-2021 Tokyo Olympic Games in the pole vault. And when she won it, it was actually just a cool scenario. I mean, you, you saw the whole thing happen. She went up to the camera and said, Cleveland, this is for you. But it, such a cool story and an incredible backstory. The useless fact part is I was actually on a track and field team with Katie Dejot. I did shot put because contrary to popular opinion, when you look at me, no, I was not a marathon runner or a 400 meter runner or any type of sprinter whatsoever. They put me in the corner put a cannonball on my shoulder and said throw, and that's what I did. But the fact that I was on a team with a gold medal Olympic winner is just so incredibly stinking cool. So I'm going to go ahead, on behalf of Lance, on behalf of Classic Hits 96.7 WBVI and ESPN 1430 AM 105.7 FM WFOB, sending a huge congratulations to Katie Najat, for her gold medal, representing Cleveland, representing Ohio, representing the Olmstead Falls Bulldogs in incredible fashion, being a gold medal Olympian, that is absolutely amazing, and congratulations once again to my former teammate at Olmstead Falls High School, Katie Dejot. Also, we're going to totally try and get her on the show at some point, because that's just too cool. Uh, a hometown person, Winning the gold medal. So happy for her. Once again, congratulations. I'm going to switch gears here and talk a little NBA right now, as I know Lance will have some thoughts on this next time we have him on as well. So I definitely want to get his input once we get to that. But for the time being, here's my thoughts on the NBA draft as well as NBA free agency thus far. A whole lot of not surprises. Really what it boils down to. Just a ton of not surprises. But you have Cade Cunningham going number one overall. Not surprising. Jalen Green going number two. Definitely not surprising. I thought he was the best player in the draft. Cleveland Cavaliers taking a center who's probably going to underperform for a couple years. Definitely, definitely not surprising. I, I want to be proven wrong about Evan Mobley. I do. I really do. I just don't think I'm going to. I just I, feel free on Twitter at Cotman Matt WFOB 
tell me that I'm wrong or at least convince me that I'm wrong in some way, shape, or form. I, I'd love to feel better about the pick. I'm just, I'm just not there yet. I'm just not there yet. Now, what I am excited about is actually for Lance's team, the Orlando Magic. That's right, Lance, for all of his bluster about not liking extra teams, he also likes the Orlando Magic. And they had themselves a great draft. At least according to everybody else. Because I've never been a huge Jalen Suggs fan. I had said that in a previous episode that I wasn't really big on Jalen Suggs. But they ended up getting him at number five when he was supposed to be long gone. They got Franz Wagner, or Wagner, 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 however they say his name, got him at number eight, and they were able to keep some of their young guys in free. So the Orlando Magic, I'll tell you what, they're looking pretty good. And while all these other teams are looking pretty solid, and you're like, man, it's an opportunity for the league to shift back into a little bit more parity, a little bit more anyone can make anything happen, and especially after this year's NBA Finals of the Phoenix Suns and Milwaukee Bucks. No Lakers, no Warriors, no Raptors or Spurs or Cavs or Celtics. None of these like teams have just consistently been in the running for the really the last decade. It was so nice to see two completely different teams in the Finals this year, and it was a good Finals. I mean, hats off to the Milwaukee Bucks, a great NBA season overall, great postseason, phenomenal finals. The Phoenix Suns, my goodness, what can you say about them? The Just whatever Chris Paul has found in the desert out there, keep it up. And he's clearly going to as he re-signed with them once free agency hits. So the, those two teams are going to be tough to beat going forward until you see what the L.A. Lakers did. Because they just went ahead and traded for Russell Westbrook. Because when you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, what could you possibly need? That's right, Russell Westbrook. So now we're getting back into a situation of the super team being rebuilt again. And I I feel kind of bad for the two teams that were in the finals this year, Phoenix and Milwaukee. I mean, tell me that I'm crazy if you want, but... How do you beat an L.A. Lakers team with Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, and LeBron James? Even if one of them isn't healthy, you still have two top-tier players at their respective positions on the floor at that particular time. It's I, I just don't see how any team can compete in the West with that. And then you look at the Eastern Conference. As much as I can't stand the Brooklyn Nets trash organization, trash team, it's hard-pressed to tell me when they're healthy that anyone can beat Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Blake Griffin. Um, who else do they have there besides... Oh, yeah, Kevin Durant, that guy. But how do you how do you beat that? How do you consistently beat that? It's, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be a big fan of where the NBA goes this next season. And I'm also just not a big fan of what the Cavs have been doing so far. I like the Jared Allen re-signing. I like it a whole lot less after they drafted a center in Evan Mobley. I don't like all the chatter still about Colin Sexton getting traded. I don't necessarily like the chatter about trying to not move on from Kevin Love when it's it's clearly time. The dude just does not want to be here anymore. So, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I will say a whole lot of not surprising. That That's how I would sum up the NBA offseason so far. We'll get into it a lot more with Lance next time we have him on with us as well. 
but I, I'm just not too sure. I'm really not that sure about it. And just to give you a little preview, next time we do have Lance on, we are going to be talking NBA, you know, the NBA offseason, what's been going on. But we're also going to be talking about college football and some of these super conferences that are getting built. Because for those of you that don't know, two of the biggest teams in the Big 12 Conference, the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma, otherwise known as Oklahoma University, you know, the whole OU part, that's not important. What is important is that they requested and then accepted an invitation to join the SEC. So now you have an SEC that's got LSU, Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, um, pretty sure half the other colleges in this country seem to be moving to the SEC now all of a sudden. The Big 12 kind of left holding the bag at the door at this point, how they're going to figure out where they go from here. That's a big question, and I know Lance and I are going to get into that, and we'll probably try and get a few more insights from some of our insiders at the college level from that one too. But that that's kind of what we're going to be talking about next time we have Lance on the program and probably during our next show as well. So make sure you stay tuned in for that one. But with that, I know it's a little bit of a shorter program today. We are going to wrap up here. But before we go, I'm going to leave you with something I've wanted to do for a while. And since Lance isn't here, I get to do it anyway. This day in history, on this day in history, and we're recording this on August 10th, this day in history, American jurist Ruth Bader Ginsburg was sworn in as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, becoming the second woman to serve on the court and the first member of the Supreme Court to receive an epic hip-hop name of the notorious R.B.G. So that happened. August 10th, 1993, that is your This Day in History, and that is going to wrap things up here for Lance and Matt Plus. Didn't go as much into the plus as we thought we were going to today, but don't worry, next time we do a what-if scenario, we're going to be diving way, way into it, because I'm doing the research now, trying to come up with some cool scenarios for you guys. In particular, top three that we're looking at, Moon Landing, the Titanic and JFK. Big ones. We're, we're doing some big, big hitters for these what-ifs if we're going non-sports, and we're definitely doing our due diligence on that one. So make sure you keep it locked in on Classic Hits 96.7 WBVI and ESPN 1430 AM 105.7 FM WFOB, and of course, WFOB.com and WBVI.com. And make sure you like and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts, on the Spotify's, on whatever, I don't know, what other podcast things there are out there. It seems you can get them anywhere these days. So make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, make sure you keep tuned in, and we will talk at you next week for another installment of Lance and Matt Plus. For my broadcast partner, Incognito, Lance Morris, this is Matt Kopman. Have a great day, everybody.